Hi there, welcome to Ed's Up, the podcast all about children and those who care for them. I'm Dr. Melody Musgrove. And I'm Dr. Kathy Grace. We're with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We're going to hear from Hannah Matthews, the Deputy Executive Director for Policy at the Center for Law and Social Policy, with an interview that we conducted several months ago. Hannah's emphasis area is on immigration and immigration policies in this country. Since we continue to have the situation around whether we're going to construct a fence, a wall, or whatever people want to call it, the emphasis that we are going to take on is the impact this is having on children and families as they are trying to negotiate our troubled system of immigration. So we're really appreciative that Hannah has joined us for this interview. We're specifically going to talk about the immigration situation, immigrant families, the effect that all of this situation is having on them and their children, and some policy implications that are going to be far-reaching. Melody, you know, in terms of how this is unfolding, from a child development standpoint and from your knowledge with uh, particularly children with special needs, how do you anticipate or what do you think is going to be the long-term impact that this is going to have on, on some of the children that we're concerned about? Well, Kathy, I don't think there's any question that this whole experience is going to have lifelong implications for these children. Um, you know, the, we know from the research of Dr. Pat Levitt, who was here in Mississippi with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning, um, that you know, experiences that children have when they are very young, um, you know, can have detrimental effects, not only on their development, but on their mental health, uh, on their ability to be successful, both in school and as, an, as adults. So we know that these experiences, either good or bad, are going to have lifelong consequences for children. And most of what we've seen in the news is that the experiences that children are having are not good. Number one, just the trauma of being, you know, torn away from their parents um, and not some of the children it's been documented have been told that their parents just uh, abandoned them Uh, that's got to have certainly psychological consequences but then not knowing you know what's going to happen they are being housed with people they don't know uh, in what appears to be almost prison-like conditions in many places so I don't think there's any question that this is going to have some really long-term consequences for these children well I think we got to get to listen to what Hannah has to say because she's going to talk about some policy implications, and I think that that's going to give people even more food for thought. CLASP is a nonpartisan anti-poverty advocacy organization in Washington, and Hannah provides the leadership, strategic guidance, and support for the CLASP-wide policy and advocacy agenda. She has previously served as the Director of Child Care and Early Education. Her expertise includes federal and state child care and early education programs, child care subsidies, immigrant families, and early education, as well as financing early childhood systems. Today, we're going to focus Focus on her work uh, around immigration and immigrant families. Hannah, what led you to get into this work? It sounds so interesting and very challenging at the same time. Well, thank you. You know, I have been really lucky to have spent the past 14 years of my career here at the Center for Law and Social Policy, which is just an extraordinary extraordinary organization working on, on so many of these issues. Um, my earliest work actually in early childhood came um, working in 
high school and in college um, in the summers in a bilingual early childhood program for mothers and their children. And I just really enjoyed working with young children. Um, looking back, I fully recognize that I do not have the incredible skills that I see um, other early childhood educators have. So I'm in awe of those who spend their day working with children. Um, but personally, I, I eventually came to see the um, the desire and the importance of working on these same issues at the policy level um, with really the potential for, for some high impact um, for large numbers of families. And I think it's really the the enormous disparities in the early experiences of young children in this country, whether they're due to income inequality, whether it's racial and ethnic disparities, um, but those differences for young children have really been a motivating factor for me in my work um, at CLASP, which is really centered around removing the barriers to economic opportunity so that all young children have access to the same opportunities and that their parents have all that they need to support their families and see their children thrive. Well, in, in general, how do you think policies affecting low-income children and their families, especially young children, have changed over the past 10 years? Well, that's a question where I think we have, in fact, seen some incredible progress over the past years, and yet we face really some very troubling challenges today. Um, and really, the data in some ways speak for themselves. Um, in sheer numbers, about a quarter of young children in this country live under the federal poverty level, and about half of them live in what we consider low-income families, so families that are about twice the federal poverty level. And this level of um, of poverty really ought to be of great concern to everyone in our country. We know it's very well documented that experiencing poverty, um, in particular during those critical early years of life, has lasting harm for children, and it impacts their education, their health, their employment outcomes into adulthood. So looking at those numbers, um, I think when we look at the poverty rates in particular among various groups, among children of color, among young adults who are raising children, um, looking at kind of our next generation of workers, it's really very troubling. But in terms of what's changed, I think when we look over the last couple of years, one of the most fundamental policy changes to really impact children um, in the last decade was passage of the Affordable Care Act and specifically the Medicaid expansion. That gave poor parents in many states the ability to access health coverage for the very first time. And it's very clear that parents' health, their well-being, is one of the biggest influences on the well-being of children. Um, when parents are healthy, they can maintain jobs, they are more stable economically, um, it makes them better able to care for their children. But I think looking then at the policy landscape, we've really seen a shift um, in particular at the federal level, but also in some states over the last year and a half. And many of the very core uh, safety net programs like Medicaid, like nutrition assistance, have been targeted um, by Republicans in Congress and by the Trump administration with the goal of reducing access for families. So I would say that we're really at a very perilous time for young children where we we know what's needed. We know the programs and services that can improve health and well-being. Um, it's access to health coverage. It's nutrition assistance. It's quality child care. And yet we see insufficient public investments um, in those programs to reach children. And 
in particular on the topic of immigration, which I know we're going to be talking about, there are even greater threats for young children where we are concerned not just about reduced access to health and nutrition and education programs, but also incredible safety concerns and concerns related to the separation of families and loved ones from each other. So I think there's lots to be done to better support um, all children and parents in this country. Well, you mentioned the immigration situation, which changes almost daily, at least weekly. And your work on immigration policies has been some of the most thorough and compelling even before this new implementation of the new policies regarding the separation of families who are seeking asylum or attempting to enter the country legally has gone into effect. And as we speak now, if had this been three weeks ago, the conversation would have been different because at that time there was still this separation policy. Now there's the policy of trying to reunite and the uh, concerns and issues around having lost parents or lost children, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, so it seems that, that we're in a mess uh, just from an outside observer. So what is your prognosis uh, for how all of this is going to affect first the immigration system and with these family separations and some reunification, some not, what is going to be stresses on the system, or what would you anticipate that we're going to see in a year from now? Or if you mm-hmm. could even do that in six months from now, which I know is very difficult. It's like in a, a crystal ball almost. Right. So I certainly don't have the crystal ball, but maybe let me start by um, recapping a little bit about kind of what's happened and what we know is currently happening, and then and then talk a little bit about what might be to come. So I mean, I think just to start with so that we're all on the same page, um, in May, the Trump administration announced that they would arrest, incarcerate, prosecute um, any immigrant who was crossing the border um, without documentation. And that includes parents who are migrating with their children and includes those who were legally seeking asylum in this country. Um, And this was the, the zero tolerance policy, as it's called. And as a result of that policy, putting that in place, um, children were being forcibly removed from their parents and transferred to the care of the Office of Refugee Resettlement within the Department of Health and and Human Services. We know that more than 2,000 children have been separated by their parents as a result of this zero tolerance policy. And um, you're absolutely right, the the terrain here has been changing um, on a daily basis. In June, after days of public outcry, um, the president claimed to end his family separation policy through an executive order, which of of course was a policy that um, he began um, in the first place. And that order really creates some new problems for for families that are migrating and is certainly um, not an acceptable solution to family separation and in fact included no plan to reunite the thousands of children who have already been separated from their loved ones. Um, So what we know is that the the administration is attempting to reunify families um, based on orders from the courts, and that has proved to be an inexcusably slow process, um, which of course is only prolonging the trauma for children and their parents. What we also know is that as an alternative to family separation, what the administration is seeking to do is to do 
essentially detain families together. Um, so we're talking about putting families, parents, and their children in jail together. It is very clear and well-documented that detaining families, having children live in jails with their parents is just clearly not an acceptable solution and is in and of itself highly traumatic to children and damaging to their mental and their physical health, right? It's just pretty clear children simply do not belong in jail. Um, and whether or not um, that will continue and go forward, it's something that we'll have to be watching um, in the courts. It's something to watch in Congress. So I think the future of this policy is certainly unclear. Um, what is clear is that there has been no end to this zero tolerance policy. So the policy that created this situation around both family separation and family detention continues. It's also the case that we know and from um, past experience has been in place that there are alternatives to family detention. They are more cost effective. They are certainly more child friendly. Um, it often involves um, releasing families to community-based providers um, or using other electronic tracking methods, but there are um, ways to make sure that, that families not only are um, in communities while they're waiting for immigration proceedings to take place, but have access to legal counsel, have access to case management services, services for their children and, and families. Um, and certainly that costs a lot less money than um, keeping families locked up indefinitely. So there's lots there that could be done differently. And this is a choice that the administration has made in putting these policies in place. Well, and I'm assuming as you are listing the problems that we're now facing is that I'm also trying to figure out what the cost may be to the taxpayers, given the current situation that you've described, as have many in the news, and the fact that we all remember the picture of the little boy who was by himself trying to be represented in court when he was barely able to speak. Is there a, a monitoring or a, a system for advocates or those who are, are concerned about the future so that we don't lose this in the context of the next big news item or the next story or the next crisis so that, that this is not just somehow another put on the back page, so to speak. Well, that is the big challenge here, right? There is so much happening in the news cycle, of course, that, um, you know, we certainly don't want the attention to this issue to go away. One, because it still exists, right? These families have not been reunified. So um, the idea that children are still um, being kept from their parents is, is really important to kind of keep on the, as you say, on the front burner, um, but also that the situation has not been, been resolved and that the zero tolerance policy is still in place. So there are incredible organizations that are working um, with families who are working on the border who are, you know, many incredible organizations that are doing the litigation to make sure that the laws are being followed to protect these families. So I think there is a lot there to follow. And clearly, um, people are, you know, can certainly weigh in. I think what, what made um, the administration try to reverse course on the family separation was public outcry. So I do think it's important that people um, who are concerned about this issue are taking action, that they are either following the information coming out from organizations who are really taking the lead on this, um, organizations like the Women's Refugee Commission and others, that they are calling their members of Congress to let them know that they think not only should families 
not be separated, but that families should not be held in detention. It's really, really important for people to speak out and make sure that this is among the issues that um, folks in Washington are hearing about. Well, if I was a resident of Nebraska, which I'm not, but if I if I happen to be, what would compel me to be an advocate or to to call in when I'm not living in a border state or a state that appears to be directly impacted by uh, people trying to cross the border and these policies actually being implemented on the, the soil of the state in which I live. So what is a fact or some information that people across the country, regardless of where they live, should resonate? How, what should resonate with them to say, I do need to pick up the phone and call my senator or my congressperson? Right. So I think a couple of things. Um, for me personally, I mean, I really go back first to thinking about the children, right? The widespread public outcry to family separation came once the public heard audio tapes of these hysterical and traumatized children. Um, and many people, you know, who don't um, necessarily had not been engaged in issues related to immigration before. Maybe they live in somewhere where this is not um, an issue in their particular community, but as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, um, they were horrified that as a country we would intentionally engage in a policy that is so detrimental to the most vulnerable among us and really feels like it, it, it goes against the, the kinds of values that we um, hold up as a, as a country as being a, a safe haven for people. And I think... Um, Another piece of that is really um, educating ourselves about the conditions in the countries where people are fleeing from, right? So many of these um, asylum seekers are mothers with young children fleeing countries that have high rates of violence, of murder, of gender-based violence. Um, they're really fleeing for their lives. So I think um, seeing these issues in a broader context and really starting to understand the root causes of migration um, are really critical here. And then... The, the third piece that I would add to that that I think um, makes this an important issue across the country is that um, while there has been so much attention on separated children, and, and again, I hope you know that attention is warranted and I hope it continues, um, but I also hope that it helps for people across the country to become more aware about the larger context around immigration in this country and that there are a whole slew of really anti-immigrant policies um, that have really impacted the daily reality for immigrants and their children within the United States, not just on the border, um, including U.S. citizen children. So I'm hoping that some of the issues that we're seeing on the border really bring to light some of these larger issues across the country. Well, it seems that this entire debate is extremely emotionally charged. And in, in my conversations with some folks that I feel have a heart for understanding the separation, there's confusion, it seems, in terms of who are asylum seekers, who are people who are legally attempting to enter the country, and the ones that they only seem to hear about in the news or from a policy perspective is the illegals and that they are the gang members and the violent people. And they've all lumped together one, which is the immigrant. Could you just give us a brief definition, uh, pull apart, so that people can have a clearer picture of when you and I are talking about the separation of families and the people seeking asylum, that that is perfectly allowed and it is legal for folks to appear to seek asylum. Could you help us with that? 
So this, and I am, you know, certainly not an expert on on asylum law, but it is really important to understand, um, you know, as I talked about the the people who are coming here, they are fleeing countries where they feel that their safety is, is in jeopardy. And they are not sneaking into this country. They are coming to the border and presenting themselves um, and asking for asylum. Um, and that is a process in which um, many people go through and there are um, established means of determining whether or not they can be granted asylum. And so this um, idea of just immediately um, prosecuting individuals who come across and really taking away their due right to seek asylum um, is 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 very concerning, and we know that's putting a, a large number of children at risk if their parents um, are returned back to the countries from which they um, were fleeing, um, or if they um, feel like they can no longer um, try to seek asylum in the first place. So um, this is a, a much larger issue in terms of what's happening in these countries um, where people are coming from, and really their their rights to be able to seek asylum here. I'm going to ask you to put on your early childhood hat here for a minute. With your expertise in early childhood education and child development policy, and in three to five years, depending on how this immigration situation plays out, what impact do you think this is going to have on our early care and education systems, our mental health and our health systems, if we remain the governmental authority over X number of children where parents are not going to be the primary provider since they have been separated? Well, I certainly um, hope that we will be working hard to reunify these families and that we will not be providing care for for children who should be in the care of their parents and and are working to rectify that. Um, But it's, it's very clear that the even being um, separated for a short time or being detained for a short time has very enormous um, mental health implications on on children and their parents as well. So there's certainly a huge need to address and provide mental health services um, to those families. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some research that our organization has done about the larger context um, in the United States around immigration, because I think there we do see um, enormous impacts um, on the early care and education sector, um, as well as other service providers. To give a little bit of background here, so last year our organization class did field research in six states to really better understand how immigration policies were impacting young children and their parents. And we focused on young children, on children under age eight, because of the critical importance of that developmental time period. What we did was to hold interviews with early childhood educators and direct service providers um, who work with children of immigrants and um, held focus groups of immigrant parents with young children. And the findings across these states were pretty stunning. We really heard just enormous and overwhelming concerns from children that they are living with the fear that their parents could be taken away. Children as young as three years old expressing fears about potential family separation. And, you know, keep in mind here that we're talking about young children, about a quarter of all young children in this country have a foreign born parent with nearly all of those children being U.S. citizens, and in fact, most of them having parents who are here and have some form of lawful status. So it's important to understand that what's happening is impacting kids because they hear 
things going on around them, and they don't necessarily know their parents' immigration status. They don't necessarily um, have an understanding. So even children with parents who are here lawfully, with parents who are um, citizens themselves, were internalizing and were expressing fears to their teachers about um, the potential of being not having a parent be home when they got from pre- home from preschool, about the potential of being separated from a parent. So I think we are seeing enormous consequences um, amongst our young child population. We also heard teachers tell us about really disturbing behaviors that they witnessed among young children, increased aggression, separation anxiety, withdrawal. We had a preschool director in Georgia who described a five-year-old child whose anxiety was so severe that he was biting his fingertips to the point that they were bleeding. And she mentioned that in 17 years, she had never seen this before. So these kinds of impacts um, are happening already and they're happening in the interior of this country. um, And it's really very concerning. We also found that children are losing access to health, to nutrition, and to early childhood services. Because families, and in particular those who may have a household member who's not documented, um, or even those who have an immigration status and are here legally, um, families are trying to make themselves less identifiable, um, less vulnerable. And so that means keeping children home from childcare. It means keeping children home from preschool. Um, We also heard about families who were withdrawing or refusing to enroll in publicly funded health and nutrition programs, including WIC and SNAP, even for their citizen children. And for these families, they were either fearful that um, receiving benefits would affect their ability to obtain residency in the future, that it might affect their ability to apply for citizenship, that it might in some way make them vulnerable. So the idea that there could be um, large numbers of children in the U.S., U.S. citizens who are not getting healthy food, who are not going to the doctor, who are not getting all of those important supports early on in life is incredibly concerning for the impacts that it'll have on our country as a whole, right? These are, these are foundational years where what happens early on to young children impacts their long-term health, their long-term ability to, um, to work, to be productive members of our society. And so this should be concerning, I think, to all Americans that we know that there are so many young children being impacted right now by this entire policy landscape. I'm so glad that you shared that because I think most of America, at least in my America where I live and work, would not think about the things you just mentioned as far as the children and families that are already here legally, but that the concern and the anxiety level is so high now that they are are choosing to, as you say, become invisible as best as they can and therefore lose out on some of the benefits and some of the reasons why perhaps originally they came to this to this country or their parents came to this country we appreciate your time so much today and you have given us a whole lot to think about and in the next six to eight months if you don't mind we may call you back and let you talk with us some more given whatever developments from uh, now to when we hook up again I would be happy to do that. Well, thank you again, Hannah. And this again is Hannah Matthews. She's the Deputy Executive Director for Policy at the Center for Law and Social Policy. One of the things that Hannah, I think, did a pretty good job is that, you know, there's not as much sympathy for the undocumented teenager mm-hmm. who just comes over here and they're in those I guess you could say facilities where they separate them out, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. But if you were seeking asylum, that's totally legal. 
and yet your child was taken from you even if you were seeking asylum. That's, you know, one of the horrors. And then the other thing is that if you were at the border seeking to get legal Mm -hmm. entry, not necessarily asylum, but legal entry, then that's where they ripped them apart. They're going to have hundreds of kids that are going to be on this Base. Again, and this is not all people who are just coming, you know, sneaking across the border. Many of these are attempting to do this the right way, like you said, to seek asylum. And it's so backed up, they can either go back where they came from or, you know, try to figure out how to get in. And then when they try to figure out how to get in, that's when they take their children from them. Frankly, I've thought to myself, how in the world these these immigration authorities could bring themselves to take a screaming baby out of its mother's arms and send it, or a a child who's begging not to be taken from their parents, I I don't know how they have the heart to do it. I I just, that's unbelievable to me. They probably need mental health services too. Nobody's talking about them. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. nightmares. Mm -hmm. Again, that was Hannah Matthews, the Deputy Executive Director for Policy at Center for Law and Social Policy. We really appreciate Hannah spending time with us discussing and helping us to better understand the very confusing and very complex immigration regulations and processes. And even though this particular interview was done several months ago, we still are having the debate as we are entering into month after month after month of this situation. NBC News recently reported that a shelter in Arizona, which houses unaccompanied immigrant minors, was videotaped, and through the tape there was actually uh, footage that showed children being abused and mistreated. In response to the video, the Federal Office of Refugee Resettlement has closed that particular center and is conducting a widespread investigation. So while we continue to muddle through uh, the situations that we debate, young children are actually feeling the brunt of this political hot potato, and their lives are going to be impacted forever. So hope that gives us all something to think about, and uh, we are going to ask Melody now to close us out with a poem. Today's lit bit is If I Can Stop One Heart From Breaking by Emily Dickinson, and this is from FamilyFriendlyPoems.com. If I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain. If I can ease one life the aching or cool one pain— or help one fainting robin unto his nest again, I shall not live in vain. That's If I Can Stop One Heart From Breaking by Emily Dickinson. Please give your children the gift of poetry. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at oldmiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Eds Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 